0: Good evening. (laughs) The size disappeared. (laughs) You must smell a little more over here or something. What a beautiful day. We couldn't have asked the weather gods for a more spectacular, beautiful, spring, glorious day. how many people notice what a beautiful day it was today? Just checking. (laughs) You know, because it can be a beautiful day, and if you're suffering, if you're in pain, if you're miserable, if you're hating being here, it's not a beautiful day. (laughs) And I'm sure there were times when you probably stopped seeing what a beautiful day it was. And you were caught in your mind, in your stories, in your drama, in your pain, in your longings, in... Whatever drama you were caught up in, it's a great mirror, you know, for us in that way. To see where we are. Are we present, you know, as we walk down to the dining room? Were we present to that experience of the valley and the trees and the grasses? Or were we just so hungry or so, you know, ravenous that we didn't even think and care about what the trees looked like? <laughs> you know, okay, just give me something to eat. So... Here we are on the third night of the retreat, and I want to give uh, uh, a little uh, overview of uh, some of the Buddhist teachings as a, as a, as a perhaps a, a way of framing some of your experience, and hopefully helping to contextualize some of it. So as you've been seeing, it's not necessarily easy to uh, live in paradise for a few days. Here we are in this beautiful place, beautiful food, beautiful people. And yet it's not necessarily all a bundle of fun, is it? In fact, it's not so easy at all to sit in silence without distractions, paying attention to our experience 24-7. Takes a lot of uh, effort and courage to be willing to show up and face your experience, face yourself. This isn't an uh, easy path in that way. So, if you're wondering why, it's, if you're the only one who's struggling or finding this difficult, you know, it's there's a certain kind of warriorness, warrior quality needed to be here, to be present. You know, in our lives we get to, you know, if we don't like something, we just change the channel or we go out or we get a burger or drink a beer or do something. But now here we invite you to pay attention, to sit with it, feel it, breathe through it. And we get to see some of the patterns that we inhabit in our lives that just continue when we're here. Patterns of maybe Mm, thinking perhaps, anybody noticed some thinking to this retreat? Yeah, we're lost in thought, you know. and so we 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 have to sit with that and be with that. And see see the, the torment of that, the frustration of that, you know. All the patterns of of our, of our thoughts, of our of our emotional life. A great Tibetan teacher once said if you want to understand the past look to your present experience because the present experience is the summation of the past. If you want to understand your future look to your present actions. How we live in the present will determine how things will unfold to some degree. So The Buddha, as uh, we mentioned, uh, was just like one of us, ordinary person, happened to be living a princely life. But some some would say that our lives are somewhat princely or princessly. Maybe we don't want to confess to our princess nature, but um, living in somewhat luxury, luxurious circumstances, and he grew dissatisfied. He realized that it wasn't. It wasn't providing him with the answers to the deep existential angst he was having about the fact that all people, all beings, get old, get sick, and die. What does it mean? What does this human life mean with those huge questions? So he went on a search in his late 20s to find the answers. And at the time, northern India was a spiritual hotbed of people seeking answers to these questions. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to suffer? And is there a way out of suffering? And so he undertook various practices, studied with various teachers, uh, surpassed many of his teachers, and and still found dissatisfaction. So he he set out on his his own journey and discovered for himself through uh, a very, I think, precise mindful attention the key, the the causes, the roots of suffering, and the way out of suffering. He discovered by himself, which is one of the attributes of a Buddha, someone who's able to discover for themselves without any help, the way out of this human dilemma of birth and death. And then he began to teach that teaching began to teach his realization. This realization that allowed him to know peace, know freedom in any circumstances. To know the peace that we're all looking for. Anybody here not want peace? (laughs) You think about all the things that you're seeking, often at the root of them is the desire for peace. We want money or security or a nice house or a big 401k, so we can have peace of mind. You can have a peaceful life, peaceful retirement. So and so, when the Buddha was 35, he, he attained awakening and then taught for the next 45 years. gave a huge array of teachings about this human life, about how to understand ourselves, about how to understand our mind, understand the way that we cause suffering, how to be free, how to find peace and joy amidst the mess and complexity of life, not to escape, not to run away from it. So um, after his awakening, he uh, wanted to share his, his, his realization. So he... Uh, he sought out some friends he'd been practicing with for six years. He'd been an ascetic, doing very, very intense ascetic practices, uh, depriving the body of food and water and breath and all kinds of things as a way to try and release the spirit, you know, to find the true self, as it was, as the path was known then. So he uh, went to. Um, he walked about hundred miles to this place called Sarnath, in northern India about a hundred miles from Bodh Gaya, where he attained enlightenment, and came across his uh, five uh, uh, Dharma bodies, his uh, fellow ascetics. And he gave this teaching, his first teaching, called the Dhamma Chaka Bhavata Sutta, a teaching on uh, the four ennobling truths, the truths that he discovered that for him laid the foundation for his teaching and his realization. So I want to speak a little about those and how they relate to our experience because these teachings of the Four Noble Truths are a way of understanding our lives, the suffering that we encounter, the causes of of, of that suffering, the way out of that suffering, and the possibility that peace is possible, that that cessation of suffering is possible in this moment in this life. That's what these teachings are about. So the first truth, the Buddha said, there is what's called Dukkha, D-U-K-K-A, D-U-K-K-H-A. it's a Pali word. Pali was the language that the texts were written down in several hundred years after the Buddha lived. And Dukkha uh, means many things, one translation is unsatisfactoriness; that there is unsatisfactoriness in life. There is suffering. There is there are things difficult to bear, difficult to hold. Anybody know suffering and satisfactoriness? He gave what he gave many analogies for it. One of the analogies was um, it's like you know in the days in those days they. they People use horse and cart, horse and cart, but we could use, we could use a, that, that, that analogy, or if you're riding a bike, and the wheel is slightly uh, imperfectly round. So, every revolution of the wheel is a slight, you know, so if you're riding a bike, you know, if, if your wheel is slightly buckled, you, there's a slight wobble every time. It sort of feels quite good, but there's a little kink. This is one meaning of unsatisfaction is that life can sometimes feel okay. Here we are, beautiful place, spirit rock, beautiful evening, well fed, nice cushion, but with still something not quite right. It's a not-quite-rightness feeling that things are okay, but there's just mm, something missing, something lacking, something, that existential angst that often plagues us. But there has to be. Is, there has to be something more. It often comes as a question: Is this it? Is this it? There's got to be more to it than this, right? I studied with a teacher in India, and one of his uh, teachings was: "This is it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it." Okay. And I, I had two relationships to that that phrase. One was. This is it? You're kidding! <laughs> like this is it? I was in in this northern Indian city. It was quite polluted and overcrowded. And like this is it? Really? <laughs> you know the, the the possibility of the path of Nirvana. This is it? You know, smoky, dirty city, and uh, this body. This is it? You mean? Come on! And the other the other way I'd relate to it was Wow! This is it! This is it! This is the only Reality there is. This is the only moment there is. There's nothing else. It's not somewhere else. So what does it mean if this is it? Like right now, this is it. (laughs) What does that do to the mind that's always saying, no, 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 this isn't it. It's it's actually somewhere in three o'clock tomorrow (laughs) when I leave. (laughs) Or... You know, when I have my, you know, whatever I've been fantasizing about having when I get, you know, four o'clock, you know, when I get to the bar or the restaurant or the (laughs) coffee place or whatever you're thinking is going to do it, you know, nirvana lies in the, you know, cappuccino store. (laughs) Then, then, then I'll have nirvana, you know. But here, no, this can't be it. And then that's actually one of the that's you know, I'll go I'll talk more about that later, but that's that's one of the core fuels of suffering. The second the second noble truth. Thinking that this isn't it. And therefore we 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 live a life of lifelong pursuit of postponing happiness and peace here and now. in in postponing for some future moment, some future event, some experience, some person, some relationship, some amount of money, some amount of status or whatever it is, retirement, whatever, you know, whatever your fantasy is. And the teaching is saying, no, it's right here, right now. Peace is available. It accompanies you every instant. Always available. That's the challenge, that's the koan. A koan is like a, a riddle, a deep question for us to explore, inquire into. So there's the first noble truth, there is unsatisfactoriness. And our practice is one direct, um, one, of the di- one of the direct reasons that we practice is to learn how to meet suffering, to meet this this fact of life. The Buddha didn't say life is suffering or it's all suffering. He said that there is suffering. We all have that. We have a body, we have a mind, we have relationships. You're going to suffer, period. Um, So how do we relate to that? And our practice is a support for that. This is from great Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi. He said, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you are tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. So sometimes the meditation has this assumption, I think Dinah spoke to this the other day, that it's like an avoidance. People in you know, the navel gazing. is a view that somehow it's we're removing ourselves from life. And you know, in the moment of meditation, we are somewhat secluding ourselves from, you know, the chaos of life. But it's not to do that as a as a practice. It's to do that in in so, so in service that we can be with these challenges, with the difficulties that we all inevitably face sooner or later. So there's many different layers of all of these teachings of the Four Noble Truths, and I'm only just going to touch on a few of them. So um, the Buddha asks, what is suffering? Birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, dying is suffering. Not getting what you want is suffering. Getting what you don't want is suffering. Losing what you have is suffering. Being separated from that which you love is suffering. So, what does that mean for us? Just, and you may want to reflect right now, not getting what you want. Is that suffering? Anybody, say what, anybody want to say what they're not getting? Not getting what we want. Maybe we don't get enough money, or enough love, or enough attention, or enough ease from our body pain. Or, you know, what else? What do we we suffer about that we don't get? Enough time off work. Anybody? What do you suffer from that you don't get it? Yeah. Uh, The right to marry. The right to marry, yes. Great suffering in California and the country and the world. Yeah. Community. Maybe we don't like the body that we have, you know. Or the mind. <laughs> Not getting what we want, losing what we have. Tremendous suffering from losing what we have, losing our possessions, you know, perhaps losing our house in a fire, losing loved ones, children, parents, relatives, good friends. Tremendous suffering. Losing our youth, losing our health, losing our wealth. How many people have lost a lot of wealth recently? <laughs> yeah, probably at least half the room, not the whole room. Painful, it's a reality. We live in an uncertain world, you know a world that's constantly changing. So we're vulnerable as human beings, as these, we're, we're sensate beings, we're vulnerable to change. Losing what we have, being separated from that which we love. What are you separated from that causes you suffering? Loved ones, family, maybe your home country, maybe you had to leave your country. I'm relatively happy I left my country of origin. <laughs> but I, I feel the pain of being missing, missing my parents and nephews and family. I think the thing that we suffer most from in terms of separ- being separated from that which we, we love, um, or losing what we have, is when, we, when we se- we're separated from, from ourselves. And we lose connection with ourselves. Separated from being, separating from, from, from our more essential nature. You know, we live on the, on the level of our mind, our ego, which is which is disconnected from a deeper source of being. I think that's one of our fundamental—it probably is the fundamental cause of suffering. And we come to a place like Spirit Rock, and we get quiet, and we slow down, and we're less distracted, and we start to touch into, oh, oh I was like, oh, I've, I've, I'm finding myself again. I've forgotten myself. I've gotten so busy and so stressed and so distracted, and. It's like I'm remembering, I'm feeling my body, I'm feeling my heart, I'm feeling what's important, I'm feeling my purpose, I'm feeling some meaning. Maybe you've tasted moments of that. It's like, oh, that's what my life's about. It's not about being busy, it's not about running around, it's not about some of the things that I've been preoccupied with. So, when some people hear this teaching, it's an incredible relief that there is suffering because it confirms our experience. You know, we live in a culture where we're trying to d- deny it so much. You turn on TV, hi, it's a great day today! You know, in a very superficial culture, it denies the reality of, 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 of being human and the suffering in the world, the suffering in the environment, the suffering with tremendous uh, tragedy around the world. <coughs> And it also is what opens us up. It's what connects us. And it's important to not so personalize our suffering to think we're doing something wrong. You know? We often think, oh, I must be doing something wrong because I'm suffering. This is from Nisargadatta Maharaj, a great Indian teacher. So he whatever said, whatever the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. If it's not acceptable, it's painful. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self by its very nature is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So what he's saying is just the, the doorway, the, the doorway of, of not getting what we want, of pain, is actually tremendous opening. It's often what gets us to, to even contemplate a spiritual life. Why are you here rather than at the spa you know, or surfing in Santa Barbara? You know, probably motivated by some desire to be free of suffering. Hmm? Viktor Frankl once wrote, it's not the load that weighs us down, but how we carry it. It's not the load that weighs us down, but how we carry it. So we all have a choice with pain, with suffering in our our lives. And these teachings, these practices, give us a choice, give us some freedom, some space about how to work with it. I once was on a retreat in England, and um, it, was a, it, was a long, it was a month retreat, I think, and I had all these great expectations about what a blissful, you know, lovely month, month it was going to be. It was spring, and I thought I was going to have this great time. And you, know, and you never know when you go to a retreat what you're going to get, you know, fun, beautiful, deep, painful, miserable. This one was a, was a dukkha retreat. Um, <laughs> And, and it, was, it was hard. It was painful. It was, I was, my mind was tormented. I couldn't settle. I couldn't concentrate. My body had some pain going on. And, uh, and I was miserable. And I was complaining. And I was feeling self-pitiful. And it went day one, day two, day three. It was a week. It's like, come on. This, you know, this usually shifts after a while. You know, doing all my little tricks to avoid it. And after about day ten, I, I had this insight. Oh, this is the first noble truth. This is suffering. There is suffering in life. (laughs) And it took me 10 days to remember. (laughs) (laughs) And as soon as I remember, it's like, oh, yeah. yeah. It's part of life. It's okay. It's just unpleasant. It's suffering. But it's okay. As soon as I sort of embraced it with mindfulness, I wasn't suffering anymore. I didn't have a joyful retreat, but I wasn't suffering about the fact that it wasn't joyful. That's the liberating power of mindfulness. So dukkha, the Buddha said, is to be understood. So each of these teaching, each of these truths has a different um, insight. Dukkha is to be understood, to understand our suffering, which means we need to get close to it. Ooh, who wants to get close to suffering? Yuck. <laughs> Chah once said, by running away from suffering, which is what we normally do, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. We spend our lives running away from suffering. What happens? It keeps following us, and then it comes around the front. with like, oh no, <laughs> we run this way. No, oh, no, and it, you know, so better to turn towards it, see it. Like I did on that retreat. Oh, this is suffering. Oh, my knee is hurting in meditation. Oh, this is suffering. Oh, my back, my my old back injury is back again. Oh, yeah, this is painful. Oh, the grief that I'm feeling about losing my favorite pet or dear friend or, you know, that's been there for several years. Oh, here it is again. Oh, yeah, this is painful. But it's okay. We turn towards it. If we, if we turn away from it, it just lingers for years and years. <clears throat> so, um, there's many types, there's many ways that we can experience the First Noble Truth. We don't have to look very far. You know, I just mentioned the first one, that the the, the, uh, the Buddha talked about Dukkha Dukkha, suffering of the body. Just by having a body, you know, sitting still in meditation for half an hour, 45 minutes, what happens after a while? What happens? You start to feel pain. You start to feel uncomfortable. You start Your buttocks start hurting, or your knees start twinging, or your neck starts aching, or your back starts spasming, or something, you know. Good Housekeeping magazine said, "There's eighty-four unpleasant, unsa- 84 unpleasant sensations in the body," <laughs> and they're not renowned for being like a Buddhist Dharma kind of, you know, <laughs> teaching vehicle. So I was teaching a mindfulness-based stress reduction class, which is a which is an eight-week application of mindfulness that was developed by Jon Kabat-Zinn for chronic pain patients in Worcester, Mass. And so I was teaching this class uh, one year at Kaiser Hospital and uh, with chronic pain patients. And it was about in the, middle of the, in the middle of the course, about week four, week five. And this woman comes in who had been suffering from chronic neck pain for 10 years and had tried surgery and pain medication, and everything that Kaiser could throw it in and nothing worked. She still had this very strong uh, uh, chronic pain. And um, she came in this week very, uh, and, and looking much lighter and much more excited. And I, we did a check in, and she said, You know, I took these instructions and I've you know, been meditating for a few weeks now, and um, I decided to, to turn towards my pain, you know, to actually take a look rather than, you know, and what, what happened was. What I noticed at first was all the contraction, or the years of fear and contraction that had kind of ossified around my neck. And with the mindfulness, I that was able to relax a little. And slowly, as the meditation progressed, I a- actually got to the very center of the pain, the very core, the very heart of the pain in the neck. And it was bearable. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was. But I'd been building up for 10 years this growing hatred and aversion and fear and resistance to the pain that have actually created a lot more tension, which is what we do with all of our pain, all of our suffering. We build so much resistance and hatred and aversion and avoidance and denial and repression that it builds up this whole kind of thicker wall of suffering. And actually what and what's at the heart of it may actually be quite tolerable if we turn towards it with presence, with awareness, with kindness. So as she did that, what happened is she lost her fear of it. So there was a certain relaxation. The, the pain didn't go. The chronicness of the pain didn't go, but she, was able, she had found some capacity, some freedom to be with it, which was very liberating. So there's the suffering of the body, there's the suffering of the mind. Anybody notice the suffering of the mind on this retreat? <laughs> Especially the suffering of an untrained mind. You know, when our mind isn't trained, it's like in this young lab puppy, this six month six week old puppy. <laughs> oh, this looks fun. Ooh, and then this looks fun. Ooh, what about this? Ooh, let's ring the bell. Let's show some water. Let's do it again. <laughs> Sit. <laughs> Sits for two seconds and does it again, you know. One breath, two breath, Oh, ring the bell. <laughs> So it's good to have a sense of humor, as you know. It's good to have a lot of space. These, these habits are deep. You know, we've been cultivating them for decades. So why would they stop in three days? You know, have a realistic expectation of what's possible. You know, if we can have some spaciousness and a sense of humor, we're doing good. You know, if we bring our mind back, you know, many times in a meditation, we're being successful. You know, if we follow three breaths, you're doing great. So there's the, the 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 busy mind. There's the monkey mind, as it's called. There's the catastrophizing mind. Anybody notice that? You know, and Mark Twain once said something like, you know, the worst things in my life never actually happened. <laughs> you know, but I spent a lot of you know, if he was a meditator, he would probably say I spent a lot of my meditation thinking about them. You know, what if I go home and oh my god, I left the gas on? You know, what if I go home and I forgot to pay that bill and, you know, what if I go home and, uh, you know, story, stories, the stock markets crash. No, it hasn't happened since such (laughs) What if it has? (laughs) How does he know? (laughs) It's Sunday. (laughs) And we create all this drama, this fear, this anxiety, this torment. And what's happening? The frogs are croaking. The crickets are chirping people are breathing, and life goes on. And then we come back, oh, right, it's just my, just my thoughts. And then, and then, you know, it happens again. Or the comparing mind. Anybody been comparing yourself to each other this weekend? Week Who's like the coolest meditator? You know? <laughs> Who's like the most spiritual? Who's the most spiritual walker, you know? Like, like has the Buddha walk down, you know, a little slow. <laughs> Like super concentrated. They're thinking about you know their latte when they get home, but they, li- they look really good. You know. <laughs> God, I can't wait for dinner. Guys. But I hope they're going to look you know. A colleague of ours, when he was doing mindful walking one day, he, he, has, he has this note, actually no, not one day, he has this note when he's really in that space of like, well, I'm really in the zone here. Like, I hope everybody's noticing. And the note he has is looking good, looking good. <laughs> <laughs> So we, you know, or we come into the meditation. You know, we come in really early, like, oh, I'm going to be the first one there. You know, like the most spiritual guy here. And there's somebody already there. It's like, damn. <laughs> Maybe they were there from the last meditation. <laughs> my god, that means that's like 45 minutes, hour and a half. Oh my god, I'm, you know, the comparing mind is complete suffering because you know there's always going to be somebody greater, lesser than, always unreliable. Dinah mentioned the critic. You know, Complete setup for suffering. Complete setup for suffering if we believe it, if we think it's true. Otherwise it's just a bunch of thoughts. You know, But if we believe that the, the judge is true, we're a bad person, we're a hopeless person, we'll never get anywhere, we're a mess, we'll never find happiness or a partner or we'll never be able to be, meditate well. If we believe those thoughts, what happens? We feel miserable. This is a cartoon I like to read from... Um, <laughs> Rhymes with oranges. Rhymes with orange. It's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. This uh, this could be what we do in meditation. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. You probably had a lot of time to do that, right? Nothing to do. God, is that another wrinkle? Oh, my God. More gray hair. Oh, my God. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. (laughs) We forgot to mention that, you know, on retreats, it's like a clearinghouse for old memories that you wish you'd forgotten about, and they suddenly start coming up, like, ooh, I can't believe I said that. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint, especially family and parents. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. There's a caption of a woman And this person's saying, oh, you look great. And she's saying in the bubble, you don't patronize me. (laughs) Resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you'll always feel. So some of the ways that our minds cause suffering. So what's liberating about the practice is we can bring mindfulness to that. We can bring mindfulness to all those patterns, to judging, to catastrophizing, to comparing, to, you know, self-belittling. We can see it, when we, when we see these things in mindfulness, they lose their grip. Mindfulness is like, it creates Teflon in the mind. You know, normally we have like, what is it? What's the opposite of Teflon? Um, Velcro, we have Velcro mind, you know. We throw something at us and it sticks, and it sticks, and it's overlay, and it's like big accretions, or like this ossified, you know, relic. <laughs> with mindfulness, it's like Teflon. We, things don't stick so much. We see it and we can let it go. We see it and we let it go. We, we surround it with spaciousness. There was a famous poster from, I think, the 70s or the 80s, I forget, some Swami. Um, there's a picture of a swami on a a surfboard and and, and it was an advert for a meditation retreat and the the ad said, uh, you can't stop the waves but you can learn to ride them. It's the same with the mind. We can't stop the waves of thought but with mindfulness, with presence we can learn how to be with them not buy into them not drown in suffering with them. Same with our emotional world. We have a lot of suffering arises with our emotions, with our pain, with our sadness, with our loss, with our grief, as I mentioned. The same thing, when we bring a kind awareness to that, then it's just what it is. It's just sadness. It's just grief. It's just loss. And we can suddenly, we have more capacity. Mindfulness gives more capacity, more support to, to the awareness, to our presence, to our being. This is from the poet Rilke who speaks of how we, what we normally do with when our emotions are painful. He says, How dear will you be, will you be to me then, you knights of anguish? Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you? How we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they have an end, though they are really seasons of us, a winter-enduring foliage. So notice when, when, when things are difficult and painful, how we go, how we, we just, we kind of dig in and go, I'm just gonna endure this. And we look to the end of it, when it's gonna terminate, rather than see, what can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? And what can I understand? So the suffering, there's a cause of suffering. What is the cause of this suffering? The, the, the Buddha said that what, keeps this whole wheel turning is a kind of fundamental uh, um, sort of inability, resistance to be with things as they are. This, This tendency, this habit of not wanting this to be it. So we're either resisting, avoiding with aversion, with hatred, with fear, Or we're grasping after some other experience, some other reality, some other moment, some other thing. So we we have this sort of fundamental relationship to the moment where we're not simply at ease, but we're looking for something else, looking for something other. So the Buddha talked about suffering as... Desire, as attachment, as grasping. The, the, the literal, uh, the, the Pali word is tanha, thirst. It's thirst, this hungering for something, for experience, for pleasant experience, for pleasure. Manifests through the endless desires that we feel. How many desires did you have this, this weekend? How many thoughts of wanting something? Ten? <laughs> in the last 10 minutes? <laughs> a thousand? I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? How many things we wanted. I want my breath to be more mellow. I want my body to stop hurting. I want the person next next to me to stop breathing so loudly. I want, you know, steak for lunch. I want coffee for breakfast. You know, just endless, endless, endless. I want more money. I want this and that. The, the desires, the thoughts themselves are not a problem. It's the attachment to the desire that causes the suffering. It's the I have to have this. It's the gripping, it's the, it's the, it's the it's the it's the controlling the the craving that moves from a simple ordinary desire, oh yeah, I'd like a cup of tea to I've got to have a cup of tea now and if they don't <laughs> ring that bell I'm going to die. I'm English so we get you know we like our cup of tea you know. <laughs> So this, as you may have noticed in, in your life, in this retreat, these desires are endless, and it keeps us toppling forwards. It keeps us unsatisfied with the moment. Right? If we're wanting something, what does it say about the moment? The moment's not complete. The moment's not sufficient. We're not sufficient. The longing for something outside of ourselves deepens the sense of ineff- insufficiency, lack, deficiency. Right? So we, we set up this polarity. I'll be happy, I'll be complete when I get this thing, when I have this person, when I have this experience. Then it'll all be hunky-dory. So I work, I, I, used, I still do to some degree. I, uh, actually, this, this company went bust. But, so I used to work for a hedge fund. I, used to, I, was, I was like the mindfulness consultant to this hedge fund. This is before the crash. And um, I was working with some of the employees there. And I had two appointments that day one with the trader the main trader and I got into the office and there was a lot of Excitement in the office. He'd made this huge trade and they'd made 50 million dollars on this trade that day and I thought That was a good day. Good day at the office <laughs> 50 million <laughs> little commission on the side So I go to meet with this this guy and I'm thinking he's gonna be like really over the moon, right? 50 million dollars for the company and he's looking really stressed and anxious. And I'm like, what's going on? He just made this amazing, you know, piece, amazing trade. He said, yeah, well, you know, I knew I could have bought earlier. And I knew if I'd held on for a few more hours, I could have made three or four more million dollars. And his mind was tormented, like it wasn't, it just wasn't enough. And that's part of this, this second noble truth that there's not enoughness. It's never enough. $50 million wasn't enough. You know, what is. Uh, was it um, Rockefeller? Just a little more. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Something like that. So the suffering of desire, of, of attachment, is 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 believing that happiness lies outside of ourselves. Happiness lies somewhere in some instant time, and so we rob ourselves of knowing that peace is available, happiness is available right here, right now, amidst any conditions. That's, that's, the, that's the offering of these teachings. There's this very cute New Yorker cartoon. There's two goldfish uh, in the ocean. Never seen goldfish in the ocean, but wherever they are, hang out in the ocean. And they're talking to each other, and one says to the other, hey, Bob, you know, what do you want out of life? Bob says, you know, I want the whole deal. I want, you know, the the round glass bowl, you know, the the little colored stones and the plastic castle and the little plastic grass and that's how we are. It's like we have this beautiful universe and this beautiful being and awareness and mind and heart. Oh yeah. And I want, you know, that new, you know, 2009, you know, Mazda, can we Ford? Whatever it is, not Ford. No, it's going on business. But you know. <laughs> Ferrari or something. So, so what's important with with desire is to notice the belief system. Notice the belief that comes with it. You know, I. You know, if I get this experience, if I get this. You know, if I get that pizza tomorrow lunchtime. You know, when I get out of here. You know, fill in the blanks. If I get that job promotion, if I get that... Not that we don't have these desires, you know, for health and for well-being and sufficient money and and healthy family and good relationships. There's plenty and plenty of healthy desires. But we have to pay, pay attention to our relationship to them and the quality of the attachment, the extent that there's attachment of how it should be, how they should be, how I should be. That's when we start to suffer. As Rumi said, the one that is doing the looking is the one that we're looking for. You know, we think it's out there, but we forget to look at that which is searching, that which is doing the looking. You know, we have to have compassion for ourselves. We live in this, this obsessive culture, this obsessively addicted, compulsive, materialistic, shopaholic culture. You know, it's putting it mildly. <laughs> And so, so we're fed. You know, happiness comes from having a lot of stuff, buying stuff, getting stuff. You know, that's that's, that's the, what makes the world run. It's it, it's even patriotic to go and shop. You know. So this is my favorite ad from a magazine. This is from an Outside Magazine. It's a picture of a guy, with his stuff. He's got his guitar, and his scuba, and his kayak, and his golf clubs, and his computer, and his dog, and his bike, and his skis, and his truck and everything else he might, young guy might want. And he's sitting in meditation. It's called Spence. His name is Spence. Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. (laughs) That's why he also has a new Ford Ranger so he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to any inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So there you go. That's why we grasp. That's why we think if we get the new Ford pickup. So again, we can be with this, this very deep tendency. You know, it arises in any moment we can bring mindfulness to it. Notice when the next time desire arises, does it just come and go? Notice when we cling to it, when we attach to it, oh yeah, this one, that, those ones are you know, kind of boring, but this one, oh yeah, this one's great. And we build these fantasies, you're know, writing a novel, finding a soulmate, you know, whatever the story is, you know. Anybody fantasizing about finding a soulmate here? You know, we, this, we call it Vipassana romance you know, your, your eyes might meet across the dining room table, and it's like, oh, this, this could be the one, you know, and you find yourself, oh, we're sitting next to each other in the hall, too, wow, this must mean something, you know, <laughs> oh, we, we have the same walking places, oh, yeah, that's really, we're really going places here, you get this whole story about marrying, having kids, and moving to, you know, the country, and and then you realize it's not going to work out, and you have divorces, and alimony, and, and then you realize you're haven't followed your breath for 15 minutes." <laughs> so we can bring mindfulness to all this process. Oh yeah, desire, longing, attachment. Notice how it feels in the body. Is it pleasant? We get a lot of pleasure from our, from our grasp, from our wanting thoughts, but there's also an unpleasant quality to it because there's a sense of lack, there's a sense of deficiency, there's a sense of incompleteness, there's a sense of longing. If we long for something there's a sense of lack or there's a tightness you know, or a clutch, clutching in the belly. So pay attention. Embrace it with mindfulness. It's not, it's, it's not that it's wrong enough to get rid of it. Like with everything, just simply notice it. Embrace it with awareness. Oh, there I go again. I'm lost in a fantasy about this, getting this, having that. Oh, that's desire. That's the force of desire. Get to know it. See it, let it go. The Buddha said the second noble truth: the force of desire is to be abandoned, is to be let go of, is to be renounced. It's just the opposite. The opposite flavor of that is the flavor of aversion, where we're not wanting something, where we're resisting. Sometimes we notice this more obviously because it's, it impinges us more. It's some loud sound, you know, some you know somebody's jackhammering outside our house, or. Um, you know, someone's breathing really loudly next to us in the in the meditation. And we just want to kill them. You know, um, or this. You know, we hear people talking outside and we get agitated because we want silence. You know, you know, or, or, or our body's hurting. When we're feeling that sense of rejection. Like, no, I don't want to feel this. I'm sick of feeling my my, my chronic injury. You know, or I'm sick of my mind. And there's an inversion. There's a rejection. There's a hatred of the thinking mind. You know. And we move through life, you know, where this, this this deep tendency gets triggered a lot. Not wanting what's not wanting what's happening to be happening. And again, it's a great place to practice. It can take us really deep. Because we have to find that place of ease, that peace, that equanimity, that mindful spaciousness that can be at ease even in the middle of something disturbing and difficult. The managers on one retreat once got a note saying, um, could you contact United Airlines and ask them to redirect their flight path because it's really interrupting my meditation. <laughs> it's true. It was a retreat up in, uh, up in uh, Oregon. We can do some funny things in meditation, right? So I'll tell this story because I usually tell a story when I give this talk. So um, it's the last piece about aversion. So when I was another time, I was in India. Um, I was on a twenty-day retreat, and um, uh, in Bodh Gaya, uh, the Thai temple. It's a beautiful temple, but mostly just concrete. Um, nothing as luxurious as this. And um, the vi- the Bodh village had sort of grown by that time. To one time, the the monastery was. It was built in the in the rice paddies in the fields. But now, because of the growth of Buddhism, it's become popular, and so the village has grown. So the, the village had spread all around the monastery. You know, lots of st- chai stands and shops and stuff stuff like that. So it wasn't as tranquil as it used to be. And one particular year, this travel agency had set up a shop outside the, the, the doors of the monastery. They were selling bus tickets to the local Tibetan, not the local, the visiting Tibetan pilgrims, who, who come by the thousands and sometimes tens of thousands for big ceremonies in Bodhgaya, and this travel agency had a but they put a loudspeaker on top of this the the store and um, They had this little tape loop that they were running uh, Trying to attract people to the store and the tape loops the tape loop sounded something like this It was like two minutes three minutes long. It was like Hello. 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 Hello Lots of hellos, and you're like, oh, yes, yeah, me. And then it would say a bunch of words in Hindi, which I didn't understand, fortunately. And then I'd hear Delhi, Varanasi, Calcutta, Bombay, Darjeeling, or whatever cities. And then some more words in Hindi. And then it would rewind. And then start again. Hello, 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 hello. hello? hello? Delhi, Calcutta, Bombay, Delhi, And it was really loud, like as loud as that, you know, and there was this concrete meditation hall bouncing off the walls. And, <laughs> and this is like day two or three of a 20-day retreat. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> you never know quite what you're going to get when you go to this retreat. And this was the flavor of the year, right? It was like, okay, this is... So we'd pray for the Indian electricity to, you know, suddenly, you know, Blackout which it does frequently fortunately in the, in the countryside and so we have these you know hours of peace and nirvana But mostly it was hello hello <laughs> And we weren't allowed to leave the monastery grounds so we had to just sit with it You know, we couldn't practice some nonviolent direct action and you know steal the speaker or something We had to just be with it. You know first it was just like oh my god I'm gonna die. You know, I hate this. I hate them. I hate everything. I just want to leave Hatred, hatred, burning rage, homicidal feelings—you know—and <laughs> self-pity, and oh my god, and earplugs, you know, stuffing them in, and you know, whatever would work, and nothing worked. You know, was, hello, 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 hello. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and it went on for days and days, and, and over over time, you know, the mind, you know, gets kind of beaten into submission. You know, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful thing about India; it just it kind of beats you into surrender, and you. You learn about surrender in a beautiful way. And over time, the, 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 the mindfulness you know, grew and the reactivity got less. And then there was, there was just the ability to see it as just noise, as just sound, just sound, just sounds of voices. And, and it no longer caused the reactivity in the mind when there was, when there was more mindfulness. And then it went on, for, you know, came and went as the electricity came and went and as the pilgrims came and went. But over time, it became humorous. There was enough space in the mind. And It was just like, oh, there's that sound again. And it didn't even make an impact. And it was a great teaching for me about where freedom lies. Because our normal conventional thinking is, oh, that's a terrible thing to happen. It ruined the retreat. That's the problem. They're the cause of my suffering. If only they go away, I'll be happy. My happiness is dependent on them going away. And that taught me, no, happiness is available depending on how we relate to the experience. If there's no reactivity in the mind, if there's spaciousness and and mindfulness, there's just peace. So the third noble truth, the Buddha said, cessation of suffering is possible, that peace is available. He used many different uh, synonyms for nirvana. Um, talked about it in terms of cessation, the cessation of suffering, cessation of the fires of greed, of hatred, of ignorance. He talked about it as vimuti, a beautiful word, which means the capacity to see things and be with things as they are, without any resistance. Imagine what that would be like to be with things as they are in every moment, where nothing caused any ruffles, where there was complete acceptance, of whatever you encountered. What a beautiful experience that would be. He talked about it in terms of nirvana, nirvana as the cessation of greed, desire, the cessation of aversion, hatred, and the cessation of ignorance, delusion. This is possible. It may seem like a long way from where you are right now, and that's okay. Achan Buddha Dasa, who was a wonderful Thai meditation master, um, for me made this teaching much more accessible when he talked about Nibbana, which literally means cooled, cooled out, it's like the ultimate cool, it's the cooling of these fires that burn, that causes suffering. He said, there's nirvana, which is the goal of Buddhist practice, you know, the cessation of all these, these suffering states. But he said, we also, have, we also have moments of nirvana. We all experience moments of nirvana. Moments where there's no wanting, there's no resistance, there's no delusion or confusion. There's simply just being, just here, just this, just the frogs, just sound. We all know this. We have moments of this. You've had moments of this on this retreat, I'm sure. It's the gap between thoughts. It's the gap between wanting. The gap between resistance. I noticed walking around after tea today, and there was a lot of people sitting, because it was so exquisite. The the evening was, was just breathtakingly beautiful. Like there's people watching the deer feeding down by the picnic tables and people just looking at the grass and the light. And, and there's just such a lot of peace pervading the, this field here, this, this valley. And I, and I can't know what was, what was happening for people's experience, but I, I can in, in, intuit or intimate that there was moments of peace. So, and so we all have these. We usually overlook them because they don't grab us. We don't go, wow, peace, how cool. No, we, you know, when we have bliss or rapture or joy, we say, oh yeah, we, we see that. Or when we have pain, we see that. The peace is more subtle. But it's really important to notice those moments because they teach us a lot about freedom, about the end of suffering. And it can be here right now. Just look to your experience right now. Is there any moving towards or away from experience? Is there any wanting of something? Is there any resistance of something? If they're absent, what's here? And just as Diana mentioned, the Buddha's teaching on Bahia. In in the hearing, that's just the hearing. That's what he's pointing to, just this, just the frogs croaking. In the seeing, that's just the seeing. In the sensing, in the body, just the sensing. In the cognized, just the cognized, just the thought. This is the end of suffering. This is a moment of peace. So this is, this is what's available. Mindfulness is one of the doorways to this. It's the doorway in a way. Because we can, we, can, we can see, we can be present to when we when we're caught and lost in resisting ourselves or our experience or longing for something. Mindfulness is the doorway to, to being simply with things as they are. So let's sit quietly for a few minutes. Enjoy the sound of the frogs serenading us. Of course, I now have gone quiet. Notice the grasping after the crog of the frogs. (laughs) (laughs) This is from Lao Tzu. Always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will all turn out. This is it. This is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better, and it has already turned out. At the center of your being, you have the answer. You know who you are, and you know what you want. There is no need to run outside for better seeing, nor to peer from a window. Rather, abide at the center of your being. The more you leave it, the less you learn. Search your heart, and see that the way to do is to be. Thank you for listening.